Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Rob Sewell. Rob is the CEO of SmartFrame Technologies out of the UK. They are a world-class image streaming network. They're doing incredible stuff, and we're going to talk about some of that, including a very exciting deal with the best in class that is New England rugby. So we'll be sure to talk. New Zealand rugby, the All New- Blacks. The All Blacks. No no, no greater name in the sport and one of the great names in, in all sport, period, globally. So we're thrilled to have you here, Rob. Welcome. Thank you, Matt. Lovely to be here. So, Rob, there were so many places to start with you, but there was something that jumped out. And that is something that goes back to 1995. We're going to take you back in the Rob Sewell time uh, capsule here and go back to Rascal's Nightclub. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. So best I could tell, you created your own monthly nightclub. But I'd love to start and talk about the five-year run you had as the founder of Rascal's Nightclub. Sure. Um, well, so I started out, um, end up due to family circumstances, living on my own at a very young age, uh, which left me very driven and entrepreneurial. Um, and in the weekends, uh, I started going to some clubs and started getting into some DJing um, and really got quite into the music scene back then in the 90s, um, which led me on to becoming one of the large, the resident DJ in one of the largest clubs in Kent, um, which is called Club Class. And we had about thousand people every Friday night warming up for some very big acts, you know, Boys George and Judge Jules and people like that. Um, and it was fantastic. You know, every Friday night at you know, that age, as young man still. Um, but I realized very quickly that the money I was earning as, as a warm-up DJ, I could earn a lot more if I was the person taking the money on the door. Um, and so being quite driven, entrepreneurial and living on my own at such a young age, always looking for the hustle, I um, quickly realized I had the network of DJs and the contacts. Um, and so I went and convinced uh, a landlord of a really nice pub in Greenwich called the Trafalgar Tavern that had uh, a very big upstairs function room, mainly used for weddings and, and such corporate events. And somehow as a young kid, I convinced him that be a great idea to, to set up a nightclub up there and uh so i convinced him that if if i could fill the club he takes the he takes all the money on the bar and i take all the money on the door um and before you know it we was you know getting flyer of the month in mix mag we was on kiss fm radio station uh some really big acts djing for me and we literally on a friday night would have a, a queue around the block waiting to get into this venue it held about 800 people and it was absolutely packed every single every single night we put it on so um it was a fantastic experience um, and uh, continued to do that on a monthly basis while still DJing um, in uh, the club class in the, the residency there as well. Fantastic. So let's stay where we are for a second, not so much at Rascals, but around that notion of being a young person hustling and finding a way forward as an entrepreneur. Uh, I find the skills that we acquire at a young age along those lines irrespective of how life circumstance put us there, stay with you your whole life. And even when you're in, quote, the corporate world, that you draw upon those experiences and skill sets that you developed as a young man. I've been working my own self since I was 12 years old. Talk about that, how that early hustle really shaped you going forward and how important that is you know, one of the things I lament about young people today is so many jobs that were young people's jobs are now adult jobs. 
and sure. that young people don't seem to work as much as they did as part of their everyday lives in their teen years. Yeah, and I think I think teens now maybe have a little bit more luxury. They stay at home for longer um, and maybe get the opportunity to save up while they're living at home for their first mortgage, etc. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't in that situation. I was thrust into fending for myself, um, which gave me a lot of drive, a lot of ambition to do that hustle. Um, but I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the education, the academia, the family support, the financial support. Um, so it was really a case of, you know, learning the hard way, um, taking the knocks, but having to learn fast and adapt quickly. Um, and I think if you've got that, you know, I think they've done a, a survey once across multiple different people uh, of what the uh, what was common in the successful people from all different walks of life and backgrounds, uh, whether it be from academia, whether it be from financial or family support or whatever it might be. And, and the one real determining factor was, was what they called a grit. And I guess, you know, having to fend for myself at a young age gave me that grit and that determination. Um, and because there was such a strong desire to get ahead and with that grit behind me, um, I become a fast study and learned what I need to learn, um, adapted very quickly. Um, don't get it wrong. There was lots of, lots of lessons along the way and lots of, of mistakes made, but, um, as long as you, you know, fail, fail quickly and learn from those mistakes and eventually it will lead you to the path of success. Uh, and it sounds like the combination of that grit uh the word hard scrabble comes to mind um and then your passion for fitness and yoga and mixed martial arts all that sort of comes together and those are sound like pretty crucial ingredients in the rob soul recipe yeah so by the time i got into my early 20s um i was you know considering where i come from i was you know earning good money and doing quite well and quite successful in the music industry um but it wasn't really fulfilling me. Um, in the background, at a very early age, I was a black belt in karate and always very much into my health and fitness. Um, and actually, my half-brother, whose dad, unfortunately, uh, had passed away at a very young age, he, he found himself living on his own as well. And I wanted to be a good role model. Um, and so I actually stepped in. He was only 15 at the time and become a registered foster carer so he could come and live with me. And that was a really uh, defining moment in my life. And I realized that to be a good role model for this troubled child that had no father figure, which I needed to step in and fulfill, um, you know, running around the running around the uh, country and DJing to early hours of the morning and all the shenanigans that went on with that lifestyle at that, that age um, was not going to be conducive to that kind of role I now had to play. So I decided to reinvent myself. Um, and my real passion in life was health and fitness and well-being. Uh, and so I restudied. Um, I, became, I got a second black belt in Kung Fu kickboxing, uh, become a yoga instructor, a Reiki master, a Thai masseur qualified, personal trainer qualified, went on courses with Buddhist monks and done a huge amount of personal and spiritual development through that period, um, which led on to my next business venture, which was holistic personal training services. Um, and very quickly, uh, that became quite quite a successful business, running around to high net worth individuals, uh, doing uh, holistic mind, body and spirit training sessions with them. And I also realized that now after a while that I could only go to so many clients in a day, much like the DJing days, if I could bring all these people together in one place, then I could earn uh, a much better much better revenue from them. So off the back of that, I then started running my own well-being retreats and workshops. 
Um, we used to host uh, wellbeing holidays in Zankinfos in Greece, uh, in Lyme Regis in Devon, and uh, do multiple different uh, personal development workshops in London as well, uh, which were hugely successful. Um, and it was really through those, those endeavours um, in the background, also done a little bit of modelling and uh, had a few walk-on TV parts as well. Um, but it was really through them endeavours as I was building that business that my network went from a troubled child kicked out of home at 16 from a council state to a network of, of CEOs and, and very fluent people. Um, and many of those recognised that drive and that grit, that determination that I had, um, laced with real uh, passion and, and love and authenticity for what I did. Um, I really met some amazing role models and mentors um, that really elevated my network. And I guess, you know, you can have all the grit in the world, but, you know, the network and the people, you know, is obviously really helps develop you as a person and the opportunities that you have in front of you. And going from holistic personal training service to well-being network, those were not the first or last businesses that you would become a founder of. No, so we went on then to um, one of those one of those high net worth individuals I met, who's become a, a very good friend um, and mentor of mine. Um, he was extremely successful entrepreneur, and we uh, went about setting up a membership business, a well-being membership business, um, which I co-founded with him. Um, and the principle was that you could study 10 areas of your life and, and we're all work in progress, right? So health, fitness, spirituality, wealth, career. Um, and it's very hard to get a good life balance. You know, sometimes we're very heavy on chasing the money or the career, but our health or our relationships are suffering. And the idea was to identify whereabouts on that, that wheel of well-being you might need areas of supporting and then lend you through to products and services and treatments and, and um, therapists that can help you uh, enhance that aspect that maybe needs a little bit of work on. Um, that went very well. Um, it was actually sold on to some of the shareholders. Um, I had a little bit of money come from that project. And at that point, I decided I was ready to go out on my own with the network of people I had, the experience I now had, and uh, set up a, another membership business called My Phone Club. Um, slightly different area, um, but at the time, it was very innovative and forward-thinking. So back then, it was when uh, mobile phones were very uncustomer-friendly, um, long-term contracts, fluctuating bills. Um, and I come up with the idea of a fixed cost monthly rolling contract where you could upgrade, downgrade, even cancel and hand your heads, handset back, given 30 days notice, or even change network provider if your signal wasn't very good, um, with a lot of benefits, so discounts at health clubs and, and cinemas, et cetera. Um, and that was going really well. We got into Staples stores as distribution partner. Um, and as we were building the business, uh, there was a couple of things that went really wrong. And it's probably one of the hardest, but one of the best learning curves of my life actually was uh, first of all, we took a, an investment on from a, a very a billionaire Romanian investor um, and it was a convertible loan. Uh, and right up until the day before it was going to be converted, um, I was told it was going to be converted and then they decided not to convert it. And of course I hadn't put the funds aside for that. Hadn't heard a conversation with their advisor at 5.30 the night before that it's fine, we're going to convert. And then at 9am the next morning, wanting repayment on demand, which left me in a very precarious situation. Um, in the end, we'd keep changing terms and he got much more than his money back, but he kept leveraging me and leveraging me over the trading assets of the business. So that was a, a very steep learning curve there. Um, 
simultaneously, um, Staples started closing all their stores where we had the implants in and went online. Um, and also the network started getting wind of what we were doing and started changing the commercial terms and what we was doing. And all these three factors just become too much to, to continue with. Um, and so that was maybe some might say my greatest failure, but I would also say my greatest learning curve actually, and applied many of those lessons in, into the business that we're operating today. Um, funny enough now, if you look at all the networks, they're all, um, very customer centric, lots of reward programs, flexible contracts. Um, so I think I was maybe also a little bit, bit ahead of my time on that one as well. Uh, you raise a great point and, and you were ahead of your time, but you raise a great point, which is the entrepreneur, entrepreneur learns as much from failure and things that don't go well as you do from the things that do go well. I think maybe more so actually. Um, if you've got the right mindset, you know, a failure is just a, another stepping stone towards success. And if you can see it as such, there's great learnings from every failure. Uh, and in fact, you should be failing regularly. If you're not failing, then you're not pushing the envelope, you're not pushing the innovation and you're not driving yourself forward uh, and testing the boundaries and living outside your comfort zone, which, which is where all the rewards in life are. Let's talk about SmartFrame. You're an image streaming technology provider you're doing a lot all over the world, but give us the smart frame origin story. Where did the idea come from? The business is now uh, about nine years old. Talk about where you were when you started and how much the vision has evolved over the years. Most often things start as one thing and morph into something else. But let's start, yeah. with, let's start with the origin story. Yeah, so, so I'm not actually a founder. Uh, of SmartFrame. Um, there was a founder and the original business, uh, which was incorporated 10 years ago, was called Pixel Rights, which is a website service for photographers. Um, at the time, I just had that big hit from the phone club, um, but I was quickly whipped up by some of the partners I had there that I was operating in and was doing a turnaround as a consultancy for a Portuguese manufacturer. Um, and I was doing a, running the UK and Ireland operations from a declining business and put about a 7% growth on there, taking them from 13 to 14 million revenues. Um, and at the time I was sitting quite comfortably, um, but I still hadn't had that big exit from that childhood dream, looking up at the stars, thinking, okay, I'm going through this, this uh, trauma for a reason. And one day it's gonna, gonna make all sense. And I had a, a big, big, big vision of what life would be like. Um, and that still drives me today, I guess. And, um, so when these guys, the founders, knocked on my door and said, look, we've got this great idea, whilst I was being paid very well in the current role, I didn't have that equity that could give me that big uh, big exit that I've always dreamed of. And so um, I looked at what they were doing. I was fascinated by the problem they were looking to, ch to, to um, overcome, which was Im image theft. So they created the first iteration of SmartFrame in this portfolio for websites for photographers which was probably the best technology to present and display images in their best way possible with high resolution and interactive features such as full screen and hyper zoom. Uh, but also it was the most secure file format on the planet with a JPEG image file format. You can easily drag and drop, right click, screenshot and steal that image. And so I was really fascinated by that core technology um, and recognized that they were great developers, great designers, great innovators, but I had the commercial um, the commercial strategy that I could help take to market with my contacts and my experience in, in multiple startups. 
Um, so after an equitable discussion, um, and they gave me equal shares to the founders, I decided to join and I originally joined as the chief commercial officer and they soon brought me up to the CEO to drive the business forward uh, and develop everything that we're going to talk about shortly. But the starting point for me was we looked on the internet um, and the first ever image was published online in 1992. There's a picture of the Les a parody pop group. Not a lot of people know that. And of course, the internet and technology has evolved rapidly since the 90s as of I, as an individual, yet we're still publishing the same file format that we did in the early 90s. Um, and when you look at that, a lot of people, you know, if you look at that file format and the mass misuse of it, there's now over one and a half trillion images taken every year. You know, we've all got a high-end internet-enabled camera in our pocket. But there's about three billion images shared online every day, 85% of which are stolen or infringing someone's copyright. That's two and a half billion images that are being misused and what we call orphan images traveling around the internet with no known owner and no way of tracking, controlling, or commercializing that content. And so the start point for me is, how can that be? The world's moved on. And if we look back in the early days of the internet, there's very similar problems in terms of piracy and value leakage for both the music and film industries. And of course, both of those industries have adopted streaming technology to regain rights control and drive more value. Um, you know, the likes of YouTube or Spotify, for example, and I would say SmartFrame is very similar to YouTube in terms of its commercialization of content, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. So that was a start point for me. And um, when I looked at the harmful impact of, of the image theft that can be, um, and you scratch beneath the surface, a lot of people say, who cares? Images are free. The internet's free. What's the problem? Uh, but actually, you know, there's identity theft, uh, catfishing, uh, fake profiles. Now with the explosion of AI, there's synthetic media, deep fakes, misinformation, disinformation. Will society be able to trust what they see in the future? You might have heard about the picture of the Pentagon with the explosion a little while ago, went viral on Twitter, actually dipped the stock markets there for a while. Now this can be a really harmful impact to society. Um, so proving the authenticity and protecting and controlling the distribution of image content can be very important. Um, then we look at um, the counterfeit market, there's four and a half trillion dollars a year spent on counterfeit goods, mostly online and using genuine brand imagery that's been stolen to fool consumers into buying those illicit goods. Obviously, that can be that is a loss of revenues to brands, potentially harmful goods going to consumers, and obviously funds going to criminal activities. Um, so as you start scratching beneath yourself, it's like, okay, there's got to be a way of controlling and policing these issues. And um, it led us obviously to our origins, which was photography. And that's a four billion industry that's been in decline now for over a decade. Um, the average stock photography license was um, two hundred sixty-eight dollars in two thousand and six, and it was just four dollars twenty by twenty twenty. And then, of course, mass misuse of those images with no payment or royalty at all. And you can imagine how frustrating that is for photographers. So that was our start point. Um, the vision was to redefine the digital image standard across the internet, but first re-empowering. Uh, photography, which led us onto sports. Um, and so we set about looking at building a platform that could scale to global, to the internet-wide adoption, um, building out the team, raising the investment. We've now raised over 14 million pound of funding. Uh, we're at 42 headcount globally. Um, and we work with image agencies all around the world that actually makes now over 620 million images available for publishers in the smart frame model and format. Um, 
so as we went along that journey, as we was raising the funds and building the team and the technology, I went around the photography industry and actually said, look, we can stop your images being stolen. And uh, I said, you've got to be kidding me, right? I was like, what? I thought I had the holy grail here. What have I got so wrong? And they said, the only way we're making any money is from suing publishers that have used our image without the appropriate license. Um, I was like, guys, come on, that's not a sustainable business model, suing your potential customers. There's got to be a better way. And that made me realize that we needed, a, as well as to protect that asset, we needed to find a way of commercializing that asset in a more meaningful way. And that's where we come up with in-image advertising. Um, and how we can then, much like the YouTube model that monetizes its creators' content through pre-roll, mid-roll advertising, how can we monetize this image content through contextual advertising placed on those images? Um, and so then we started building out the advertising piece uh, and started working with a lot of the media agencies to see how we can commercialize this content. Um, Smart Frame Network is growing rapidly now. Um, publishers get to use our image those 620 images for free so it's a cost saving for the publisher in a copyright compliant way so they no longer have to worry about litigation from the misuse of content the interactive features the full screen and deep zoom improved content engagement and dwell times on their platform and then we pay the publisher from any advertising that served on them that are contextually relevant we use the metadata of the image to target the contextuality so we know granularly what's in that image through the person who stared down the lens and took the picture. We also scan the web page and for our own proprietary analytics, understand the geolocation of device that the image is being viewed on. And we use all those reference points to form a really high class premium ad campaign. And the ad campaign is obviously in the heart of the editorial content. So it's an unmissable high viewability attention grabbing ad format. People are reading about a particular content, they're looking at an image and then an ad that's relevant to that content they're engaging with appears, um, which gives much greater uh, engagement and return investment for the brands that advertise with SmartFrame. And that money then pays the publisher and then we split the rest 50-50 with the content creator, much like the YouTube model. It's a really clever three-ring circus that you've created. Uh, let's go back to that analogy that you referenced in the earlier days of digital music. It sounds like, Rob, that the way that this was pre-smart frame was more like Napster, where people are just, in effect, stealing. Absolutely. I mean, it's mass, mass misuse of image content all over the internet. And people and think it's okay. But it's and, not. <laughs> and so, well, it sure isn't if that image is yours and you're not getting paid for it. So you, the platform gets created. You get brought in to uh, grow the business, refine the business, expand the business, lead the business. And you've now created the image equivalent layering in contextual advertising so that those rights holders are compensated and so that you can generate revenue in a contextual way along that journey is that pretty right yeah and if you put that you know, into context um you know the entire stock photography license industry is a four billion industry contextual advertising due to the demise of the third party cookie which i'm sure you'd be more than aware of uh was at 178 billion in 2021 and is estimated to grow to 376 billion by 2027. So you've got a 4 billion declining licensing industry, or you've got a growing 376 billion contextual advertising industry. And now imagine 
what smart frames doing is rather than monetizing the asset by licensing it we're monetizing the audience consuming the asset by serving ads when those images are viewed and surely you can see quite easily that a one-off low-cost image license and mass misuse with no royalty at all is never going to from a four billion industry is never going to be the same as being paid every time your images are viewed when an ad is served from a 376 billion advertising industry so here we can create a much more sustainable future for photographers which is in everyone's interest to ensure you know we have great photographers of the future yeah no i i i really like this a lot so take us through the all blacks partnership as a as sort of a case study if you will yeah sure so as we was going along the journey of bringing all these image agencies on around the world, it led us into some interesting conversations across the sports industry as well. Um, in particular, we've just launched a New Zealand rugby. There's lots more announcements coming down the pipe. Uh, but as we started looking at that industry, we realized they had obviously the same problems um, when it comes to image misuse and commercialization. Um, and sports content and celebrity content is probably the most used and viewed content online. Um, and as we dug in a bit deeper, some sports brand had their own photographers. Many relied on an agency to take those pictures. And if they relied on an agency to take those pictures, um, even though they paid for the photography services, the IP and copyright of those images never belonged to the, the club itself. So it was a real loss of IP for them. Um, and then, of course, the royalty uh, revenues back from that didn't even cover the cost of the photography services, or at best maybe did. Um, so... We come in and said, look, we can provide the same level of global photography services. We now partnered with a company called Action Press uh, and Uli Mitchell, their CEO, is the uh, former global picture editor of Reuters. Um, and they've got over 5,000 photographers around the world, very well connected and respected. Um, and they will send their photographers in, which are as good, if in some cases better, uh, than the photographers clubs are already using. And the difference is when our photographers take those pictures, the IP belongs to the sports brand. So they're now regaining control of that IP. We then distribute it in the smart frame format for free to publishers in the model I just described. And the club now can also protect that IP through the security functionality, give a better fan experience through the interactive features of smart frame, gain new audience insights and data for our proprietary analytics, and a much better commercial model now they have a new media placement for their sponsors and of course, smart frame advertisers to place their campaigns on that content when it's viewed, uh, which yields a far better return than than the traditional licensing model. Um, and that's why New Zealand Rugby, uh, and it's not just the All Blacks, but the whole of New Zealand Rugby Union have now adopted this model. Uh, and let's say there's many, I can't mention any just now, but many other entities that will be following suit. And we believe this will become a global standard. Absolutely fantastic. And is the reception to the smart frame offering, if you will, is that global? Is it regional? You know, New Zealand, the All Blacks, certainly a global brand, as is uh, New Zealand rugby in general. But talk about, you know, adoption and rolling this out. You're still a relatively small company across the globe. Um, yeah, I mean, we are a small company. We do have a global footprint and global partners in uh, both the content industry, uh, picture agencies all around the world, um, obviously sports brand. I mean, you couldn't get any further from the UK in New Zealand. <laughs> it's a long old journey. 
Um, and obviously we have publishers now all around the world, but we are a small team with a very big vision. Um, we are now currently raising our Series A funding round, which will allow us to expand quite rapidly. Um, we do have to pick our battles and focus um, sort of on the specific areas that we want to win in. We're obviously very strong in the UK, um, being a UK company. Uh, we have a good growing presence across Europe and also in New Zealand. Um, part of our expansion with this Series A capital will be to set up camp. We do have some people in the US, but we want to expand our presence in the US next. Um, but it's yeah, the, the the weight of the the, you know, the technology speaks for itself and can be distributed itself. So it's now we've seen this network. Uh, it's, you know, it's the network effect. We're starting to see that take place, and literally our growth is double digits at month on month currently. You referenced it earlier, but let's dig a little deeper here as well. Uh, deep fakes and uh, the, uh, though not new, new technology, but the certainly top of mind newness of artificial intelligence. Talk about that and how you're both on offense there and perhaps also on defense there. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different areas. First of all, is a lot of this AI is being trained from image content. Um, and sending web bots to analyze that content. So part of the smart frame uh, security features is that we are invisible to malicious web bots. We recognize a web bot trying to access that image and we allow it permission or not. Um, so first of all, we can prevent uh, AI from training its model using our content. Um, but then secondly, um, AI stolen images can also be then used to replicate the AI fake deep fake image as well. So we prevent, there's preventative measures at that end. Um, but on the other end is actually proving the provenance. And uh, we've integrated with the Adobe led content authenticity initiative, which you may have heard of, um, which is growing in numbers uh, and partners all around the world. Um, they've spotted very early on this growing issue of deep fakes, uh, working to prove the provenance and authenticity of all media types, not just imagery, but video, et cetera. Um, and so we've integrated that into our systems. And when a, an AI uh, authenticated image is uploaded, we recognize that and instantly display that in an overlay on the smart frame. Um, we also are now a trusted source. So if we know it's a genuine image, we can stamp that as proven provenance and the end user can see in the smart frame overlay exactly who took it, when they took it, where they took it, and also any edits that have been made to that image in the gallery slideshow within the smart frame interface itself. So I think it's two twofold. One is protecting images from misuse, and two is proving the provenance and authenticity of the image to the user that's consuming the content. And looking at growth, how much of that is geared towards deepening your bench looking at engineers looking at you know furtherance of the smart frame tech stack i imagine that's a very big part of the overall growth equation um yeah i mean we've got a very well established team of developers coming out of europe in poland uh, which are amazing and the innovation that's coming out there is phenomenal but absolutely if you want to become a global standard you know just imagine first of all the depth and breadth of scalability uh, and performance but also those, Im those images have to perform you know, on every device and new devices that come out, you know, mobile, laptop, Android, Apple, desktop, tablets, all the rest. 
and also be supported in every single browser going back several versions. So it's always working optimally. So just the um, maintenance and keeping SmartFrame uh, performing at speed and scale is, is a job on its own, let alone adding features and innovation to the mix as well. Uh, although we do have a lot of innovation coming down the pipeline, but we're very well established and stable in that camp. Uh, whilst there will be some growth in that area, the lion's share of this growth is all commercial heads now, uh, as we feel we've firmly, firmly established product market fit. As I mentioned, the network's literally doubling month on month now, and the commercial opportunities upon us, uh, you know, we need, we need a bigger commercial team to to really maximize and capitalize on the opportunities we have now to hand. Great, great story. And this is not the first time I've heard and talked about engineering and innovation strength in technology coming out of places like Poland, Romania, and uh, the old Eastern Europe. That seems to be a real, real strength over there. Yeah, I mean, just amazing talent amazing work ethic um i mean after our cto is you know he was very young when we, we first started out in this business but it, it just genius um and the whole team he's built around him are just the work ethic as i say and the innovation that's coming out of that team is just extremely proud of all of them really um and of course you know in the in the early days when we first started it was you know very cost effective to outsource to poland um, although now since the lockdown and everyone started working more virtually and spreading, um, there's been a real uplift in, in salary costs uh, across those regions now. So it's not quite so financially beneficial, but certainly a great hotspot for talent and, and innovation. Right. Well, it, it starts with talent and innovation, certainly. Uh, Absolutely. Talk about, as the CEO, the challenges that you have of managing growth, double-digit increases on a monthly basis, continuing to service those that are already part of the smart frame family, but ensuring that that level of service that they're accustomed to translates to your new partners and customers and clients. Managing growth has to be a big, big challenge for you growing that quickly. Indeed. Um, I'll say fortunately, yeah, the whole system has been set up as a, a technology to be the enabler, um, but certainly it needs uh, manpower to service those partnerships and to drive that growth as well um and i guess that is you know finding the right people um onboarding them it's quite a complex technology quite a complex model so training educating onboarding them get them to be impactful in the shortest period of time uh, is a challenge uh, for sure um and uh, of course funding funding that growth as well simultaneously so um probably one of the lion shares of my job is constantly bringing the, the uh, certainly at the moment going through a series A round of funding uh, that takes up a huge amount of time and effort uh, to get the the funds to to to, um, to keep those resources coming into the business um, and it's obviously been a, a tough time on on the uh, investment economy certainly over the last six months uh, so that's been a been a real challenge uh, but I'm pleased to, to say we're just about to reach terms with with a major partner there uh, and we've got an amazing uh, talent uh, and acquisition manager in the business that manages all our recruitment and leverages multiple uh, specialist recruitment firms in each area that we need to source talent. Um, and we've got quite a quite a well-oiled machine there. So we grew, we're at 42 headcount now. We grew from like 20 to 42 uh, in about six months last year. Uh, we're looking to do the same in, in the forward six months once this, once this funding is behind us. And in any investment climate, I would think being able to demonstrate consistent growth 
double digit monthly growth, that's got to help move things along. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that. And obviously, you know, the sheer size and scale of the, of the vision and what the opportunity is that, that lies ahead of us. Uh, I, I love it. It's such a great story. Talk about the evolution of the contextual advertising piece of the business. Where did that begin? Where is it now? And where do you see it going? Sure. So, so I had that realization uh, quite early on uh, when we went to the photography market and said, we can stop your images being stolen. They said, you know, the only way we make money is by suing publishers of, of misused content. So um, I realized we had to turn that on the head and find a, a better way both for the publisher and the photographer to commercialize it. And in-image advertising was very much on, on my radar. Um, and again, it was a real tailwind that the demise of the cookie happened to be taking place and everything was moving towards contextual. Um, and I think we have a real USP uh, for that marketplace when it comes to contextual. So using the metadata of the image, um, we know, you know many would use AI, for instance, and we put a picture of uh, a Taliban holding a machine gun with bullets wrapped around his neck, smiling into Google AI, and it recognized a joyful joyful image of a musical instrument. I thought it might be a bass guitar. Um, or we put a picture of a, a red Tesla with Elon Musk at a Belgian car show, um, and that image recognized a red car. We knew the exact make, model, the Belgian car show, the year. So from a brand safety and a targeting point of view, you know, we wouldn't serve a musical advertisement on a picture of a Taliban holding a machine gun for sure. Um, likewise, if we served a campaign on that Tesla, we'd serve a campaign to book a test drive for that exact make and model, a local dealership to the person who's viewing that image. So I think metadata and human verified metadata, as much as the buzz around AI, you still can't beat the human eye when it comes to verification of what that content is. So, you know, the uniqueness of SmartFrame is that relationships with the photographers and the image agencies are uploading the content. And we can use that from a brand safety and a brand targeting point of view, along with scanning the web page. So I think that puts us in a really strong place from a contextual targeting point of view. Um, and then the attention economy is a big buzzword in advertising at the moment. Um, say 96% of banner ads aren't seen due to banner blindness. Uh, we also don't rely on programmatic as is a premium campaign on premium content in a premium placement, the image in the heart of the editorial content itself. So as much as the image look amazing, the advertising has to look amazing and it has to be of high relevance. And that really creates a much better uh, viewability and attention grabbing ad format um, for the advertisers as well. And navigating the ecosystem of agencies and brands, where are you receiving warm welcomes? Where are you receiving resistance? And on the latter, how do you overcome that resistance? Um, sure. I mean, being a, you know, a startup, well, 10 years on, I've got to stop using the word startup, I guess. Um, we're, we're very much maturing and growing and, uh, and, and more of an established business now. But I guess... The final piece is the advertising. So we are very well embedded and respected and entrenched within the photography industry on a global basis. And that's followed and is grown across publishers on a, on a global basis. And of course, we had to have the content and then we had to have the audience before we could take a product to the advertisers. Um, and we're now reaching that point where the publishing network and, and the smart frame network is growing at a substantial rate that we have a real uh, proposition to go to those advertisers and and simultaneously, our ad team has been treading the boards, building relationships, doing lots of lunch and learns in all the major media agency holding groups here in the UK, but of course that service clients globally. 
Um, we've got some trading agreements now coming through, but there was a real resistance there. Don't, you know, a lot of people were trying to tap into that advertising dollar, uh, and there's also a lot of established relationships um, that you've got to overcome to get a trading agreement in place. Uh, but we're starting to really make those progresses, and I think what stands out from us over other contextual players in the marketplace is that whole sustainability. You know, the vision of creating a better for photography service and image ecosystem a more sustainable future for that industry and a better system for society in terms of eliminating fake news and, and, and misinformation and actually their ad dollars as well as being a great ad placement with high relevance and high attention um, actually they're doing good in this world as well with every advertising dollar they spend with smart frame it's a great great story and and you really see rob as we've sort of gone through this how you can tie it all back to what you were doing at rascals nightclub seeing where the opportunity <laughs> was understanding scale how scale can feed yeah. growth and, on, a much, uh, on a much grander scale now but yeah absolutely. In, indeed indeed but you make a lot more money you know letting 800 people in than you do one and exactly. uh and i love this conversation and story i love the grit uh which is no doubt still part of your daily dna and makeup and how you run the business and Absolutely. it's a it's a great great growth story and uh we look forward to staying in touch and and watching you grow and i i really enjoyed having you here on great minds and uh this is a great story matt thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it